Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. This is your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is James Lindsay, who is a very prolific author. His book, Cynical Theories, which he co-wrote with Helen Pluckrose, just recently released, and that is a very excellent distillation of the ideas operating behind the various different woke or critical social justice ideologies. In this interview, we speak about critical race theory, what it is, and why is it something that we do not want in education and government institutions? It is critical race theory, that is. It proposes to solve racism, but in actual fact, if you look at how it operates, it does the exact opposite, as you can see in my documentary on the Evergreen State College and my coverage of other instances of social justice gone awry. This is an expansive conversation. Me and James kind of get along. He's become one of my best friends in this foray into figuring out what is going on in these various different currents of thought. And so without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Here is James Lindsay. I figured that we would end up just kind of talking shop today about, you know, whatever's going on. And of course you get Trump and all of this nonsense going on and the freaking EO and uh, all of that stuff. All that stuff. So Wait. I didn't know if that was going to come up. But what, um, what's the EO? What do you mean by that? The executive order that he put out. Uh, that I mean the, the the meme version of it and the announced version of it, but not the written version of it. Um, strike down critical race theory out of federal government trainings. But if you actually read the thing, it doesn't say that. Uh, it says something else much clearer and better um, that I think is really brilliant. I'm. You know, I wouldn't exactly call myself a Trump supporter, but I would definitely say that the the people who wrote the executive order did an extraordinarily good job um, writing the executive order because it's done in a very smart way. Uh, What is it calling out then? What is it targeting? Specifically, I mean, we would have to pull it up to have all of it in front of us, but it specifically targets to kind of put it in a very simplistic understanding it targets what what critical race theory does rather than what critical race theory is it specifically has i think nine different uh beliefs or attributes that it says are inappropriate for federal contractors and trainings and they kind of revolve around the two ideas of racial scapegoating and racial stereotyping um and so in particular the racial scapegoating is a very intelligent way to put kind of the entire dialogue around whiteness and white privilege and and all of that, uh, the, the white complicity concept. So rather than saying critical race theory should not be used in federal trainings, blah, 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 pursuant to yada, yada, it doesn't do any of that. It says here are nine beliefs, I think there are nine, that we consider to be divisive tenets, and these divisive tenets will not be allowed in um federal training or the the employee training programs of federal contractors or or i think some kind of grant recipients um we'd have to look at the text to know for sure exactly what it is but the it goes after things that critical race theory turns out not only to do but things it does in common with white supremacists so it actually ensures that a like white supremacist backlash wouldn't be able to be um you know you wouldn't be able to to have like an anti-diversity training or an anti-critical race theory training in response that's rooted, say, in something like white supremacy or or anything else. So it really tries to, to level the playing field to, to equal treatment 
Of course, it doesn't name any specific races or sexes. It just says you can't do these things by race or by sex and is very even-handed in that regard. Hmm. So it, it's actually really well done. A lot of people think, you know, oh, Trump did it, so it must be terrible. Well, first of all, you know, his lawyers probably are the ones who did it. And second of all, it turns out that this thing's worded really well. It's really an intelligent and fair approach that I think is a model that uh, corporations and organizations and universities should be looking at rather than, you know, going full bore into, you know, Trump did it. We have to resist it and do the opposite because, I mean, as far as I can tell, because Orange Man Bad uh, as like the depth of their analysis, um, there is, of course, the tendency to lie around this we saw it in the media i think they even like kind of social media like focus grouped the whole thing because now it's like oh trump banned uh racial sensitivity training but when it first when he first announced the eo it was going to be um i saw about a bajillion things the bbc cnn all these different outlets npr dropping all these different articles and some of them were racial sensitivity training some of them said diversity training some of them said cultural sensitivity training and none of them, or almost none of them, said critical race theory, which is very specific. Yeah. Uh, they all, it's almost like they tested which ones of those things would play the best with the public and be the most defensible. And it seems that, especially with the presidential debate, where Chris Wallace specifically said, you know, uh, racial sensitivity training, and he mentioned critical race theory by name, and then backed up and said, you're, you're banning racial sensitivity training, which gave, it's false. And then it gave um, Biden the the ability to talk about the entire thing in terms of well, racial insensitivities still exist as that as though that's the relevant thing that's going on. So there's some weird reframing happening there hmm. around the term racial sensitivity. But I don't know if we were maybe talking shop is a bit dull. Maybe we could talk about movies or something. I haven't watched any, but <laughs> well, okay. This is I I published something. You inspired me. You made some flashcards, and I distilled them into my own language. And I Good. put apart. I put away my uh, my wordplay and my ambiguity, and I just came out and I said that critical cultural sensitivity, critical race theory is not cultural or racial sensitivity training. It's an incredibly right. divisive ideology that has a component of sin without any forgiveness that that's kind of uh, metaphorical language and that it doesn't belong in schools or in government. And the response to that, I said a couple of things with a little bit more substance, but the response to that was on Facebook specifically, the people that I know, uh, which is different mm -hmm. than Twitter, which is people interacting with that persona that, that I've built there was a ray of people agreeing and then the disagreements came in two forms. One person was really angry because he pointed out that there's this huge problem of race and to ignore mm -hmm. it or to put it away is it's not acceptable. It's an infection and we need to root it out. He was very, uh, very livid about that and very strong mm -hmm. in that. And another person responded to him to say, well, if this is a really good problem, then you want really good scholarship. And mm -hmm. this critical race theory is not good scholarship. So it seems right. that, and, and I know that you've tried to really distill uh, into some sort of package that people can really pick up what is wrong, what is divisive 
about this critical race theory. If we kind of strip away all the different terms that always attach to it, they put equity on there. Biden said equity, which is a concept that doesn't mean equality. And there's right. these, always this term. So if we push away all those terms and get to the root of it, what makes it divisive? How do we communicate that? That's the... Uh... That's the golden goose right there, right? That's hard to figure out. That's what, what um, Mike and Helen and Peter and I have been banging our heads against for, I guess, a little over now, two years. Today is the anniversary of the Grievance Studies Affair going public, by the way. Two years ago, uh, the public found out what we were up to, and our lives kind of changed course rather dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, today was the day. Um Right about now, I think, is about the time, as a matter of fact. I don't quite remember what time of day it was because, you know, I was in Pacific time and it might have been later in the evening. Uh, it may have been I'm in Eastern time now, so it might have been this time of day, but in Pacific time, so a few hours from now. But it, and we're right at the cusp of when we went public with that video and the Aereo magazine publication and, and then the uh, Wall Street Journal. We had to let the Wall Street Journal thing go out first. That was... Uh, part of the deal. And so that all happened today, two years ago. So we've been trying to package up the message since yeah. then. And of course, we were more focused on feminism and gender studies, or particularly gender studies. Feminism is much more broad than that. Mm -hmm. With the majority of what we did with the grievance studies papers, we, of course, the rewrite of Mein Kampf is straight up intersectional. So it's dabbles into critical race theory quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and figuring out how to communicate to people that, you know, besides, you know, publishing Hitler in that language, that this is a divisive ideology that focuses on the wrong things has proved to yeah. be um, much more challenging. And I, you know, I see the the frustration that, that I suppose your friend expressed that race is an important issue. We should be rooting out racism. We have to, to dig into this. And um you know, the answer, of course, that, that your other friend provided, that method matters in some sense. We need rigorous scholarship. These problems do matter. They're important. Um, I I think that that's of the highest priority. But then at the second level of priority, right now it has now become a, just a huge assumption that racism is, like they're saying it's a public health thing, like a public health uh, epidemic. Yeah. Um, in the middle of a pandemic, they're saying the real pandemic is, is racism, which is really bizarre because we actually have a virus that's happening that turns out to be real um, and not metaphorical in any way. And then so we've got this, you know, that it's an epidemic, it's a pandemic, it's the real problem, it's a public health emergency being declared in different places. And this this idea that, that you expressed uh, perhaps directly or perhaps, um, you know, uh, paraphrasing your friend, that we have to root it out. I question that idea. I don't say that I think maybe we should retain racism, but there's a difference between saying uh, we don't want racism in society and we need to root it out. This active digging in to try to find it everywhere that it can be, and I, I would actually argue literally made up to, to be like this whole master bedroom example is just kind of perfect with that. There's nothing racist about a master bedroom. It has nothing to do with race or anything to do with anything remotely close to it. And yet that's got to be rooted out of real estate now, because what if somebody thinks it does? Uh, so this active drive to root it out of things 
um, you know, with the master bedroom, it's like somebody is wrong about this. So we have to change, you know, it's just this maybe maybe it's time to question the assumption that digging to root something out as vigorously and aggressively as possible isn't the way to go with certain types of problems, uh, societal-wide problems or, or significant problems that have to do with belief and action and so on. We've seen attempts to root out wrong belief before and to dig it out everywhere it exists, these kind of puritanical things that have happened in the past. Give, give an example of that. Puritan, Puritans. Okay, well, Literally Puritans. That, that's um, really, that's pretty far away from us. We, I, I think a lot of people don't, don't really recognize the patterns that they're acting out really are not necessarily ancient, but they're working out a very long conversation that belonged in religion. Right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, a more recent example, it's ugly, of course. This is what you saw. If you, it, uh, Most people haven't bothered to, to read, you know, either Mao or the things that were happening around Mao. So this isn't that far removed from us. It just happens to be a different culture. Yeah. Um, but if you go in and actually read some of what he was about, not so much during the Great Leap Forward, which was this kind of weird steel-based communist attempt that failed and killed many millions of people by starvation, mm-hmm. but when he decided to take the next step with the Cultural Revolution, which is more of a parallel to what we're seeing happening now specifically, you can read in tons of the things that were being circulated at the time that he was putting out at the time how it was people with hidden rightist, you know, like right-wing intent, and that, that didn't have uh, the right revolutionary zeal that had to be rooted out of society. Right-wing belief, right-wing thought, rightist is usually, like we say leftist, there's rightist, although we don't often say that phrase. That was something that, that was definitely had to be just dug up and rooted out of society. Um, and... Again, it's this very aggressive desire to dig things up. We often could draw the parallel in American history to McCarthyism. Yeah. Um, McCarthy, of course, was trying to dig up communists, hidden communists throughout uh, the, the federal government and, and Hollywood and so on. It turns out there were a lot more of them there than McCarthy might have been more right than we think. But still, the vigorous campaign to root out and find hidden problems manifests its own kind of problem. Yeah. So this is kind of a saying, a way of saying that you can genuinely have a disease and make the cure worse than uh, either the, the disease or the natural immune response to it uh, that eventually clears it up. So trying to force an issue um, that's bad, to try to force an issue that's bad out of society can actually trigger not necessarily just a backlash, which is what everybody ends up talking about, but also it can trigger just its own kind of wake of collateral damage. Um, And so if we talk about how do you package up critical race theory in this way, right? How do we, how do we show that this is divisive? I mean, and and at the same time, not go full, we're going to dig this out of society. Right. Right. Maintain our rationality in, in the process. This is why, I mean, why critical race theory is a bad tool for this because its first assumption is racism is the ordinary state of affairs of society. And so it already assumes racism's present everywhere. And people say, well, show me one, 
one scholar who's not fringe who said that and it's like would you like a catalog it's it's like all of them say that that is a the fundamental core tenet of yeah. critical race theory uh it's in delgado and stefanchik's book that is titled oh, what's it called critical race theory uh it's it's uh been distilled by robin d'angelo and her yeah. papers and her speeches as the question is not did racism take place but how did racism manifest in that situation which as you witnessed with your own eyes was like the concept that burned evergreen to the ground um yeah. kind of in some yeah. sense i think uh, people don't really understand that that is the funding fundamental axiomatic principle of this whole thing is that racism is everywhere and it it functions on all level of society and every interaction is distilled into this power dynamic that is right assigned to race they they really don't understand that um and then all these terms come in sensitivity and all these other things obfuscate that fact that's right that's right that's exactly right and the way that it's determined whether or not there's racism. There, there are two measures. So there, the object of study of critical race theory is systemic racism, specifically. Not racism in general, not race, systemic racism. So then you have to ask, what is the definition of systemic racism? And they blather on and it's like a paragraph that nobody's quite sure what it means. And they mention institutions, and they mention individuals, and they mention culture, and they mention all these different dimensions in which racism plays out. But generally they would say, that it's a form. It is that form of racism that can persist through the the general activity, actions, and impacts of a system, even without there being a single actor who has racist beliefs or actions, without having a single institution that has a single racist policy. So it is kind of the racism that's in the air, in between everything. But it, so it, it, the reality of it is pointed to in the gaps. They, that's exactly they right. That's the outcome. So you can actually, they have names for all these different kinds of racism. I'm kind of in loosely planning, you know, my own podcast on this at some point. They have institutional racism that happens in institutions. They have individual racism that happens from individuals. They have environmental racism. They have structural racism that happens within. The structure is complicated because it's kind of like high philosophy kind of bullshit. There's two things going on. One is the structuralist French thing that postmodernism ran with so it means within the structure of language within the structure of thought within the structure of how we communicate but there's also structure in the sense of like society's structure so it's like you could say if the police department were were enacting racist policies right you would say that's institutional racism in the police department if the justice system had those you would say well that's institutional racism in the justice department but say neither one of them have them but the way that the two interact the way that the information passes back and forth creates this disparity. That would be kind of like structure. It's the relationships between entities and societies that, that's referred to as structural racism. And there's this cultural racism, which is more or less, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's more, there's a little more complicated than this, but it's, it's more or less the idea that majority cultures are majority cultures. That's what it comes down to. It's and majority is are, a negative. Majority is somehow wrong or bad, right? Correct, right. Well, the, the idea with cultural racism would be that when you are a member of a minority culture, certain aspects of your culture aren't valued as highly as other cultural aspects would be. But, so, again, a lot of these things are like, should we call it racism? Should we not? I don't know. But then you have systemic. And systemic means all of those things plus all the stuff we can't explain, the gaps, everything in between that 
And so um, the they they do have rubber hitting the road somewhere in here, and the rubber hits the road. They actually how how do they know to speak up and say there's systemic racism? Well, they can do it one of two ways. One is an actual instance of racism occurred, individual or institutional, and they say only that could only happen in a system that allows for such a thing to happen, which is scary totalitarian, but they do think this way. So that's like every individual act of racism is a, is a symptom of a broader whole. And the other is there are inequities. Unequal outcomes are happening, and I don't mean all unequal outcomes. I mean particular ones that they happen to care about. For example, uh, Asians, uh, East Asians particularly in the United States, but also South Asians, especially in the UK, uh, and I think in Canada, but I don't know the, the statistics for sure, but also Jews outperforming whites, uh, Nigerian immigrants outperforming whites. None of this counts. <laughs> that doesn't count. Those are not inequities. Inequities have to be attached to the systems of power that the theory describes. So you know systemic racism is occurring if differences in outcome are occurring or if any acts of individual or institutional racism are occurring. And those are the two tests. That's it. And so if that, then systemic racism. So if equity lacks, then systemic racism. If people can possibly be racist, again, this is very totalitarian. If people can possibly act in a racist way, then the system must allow it. So therefore, systemic racism. And critical race theory is the the study of this. And you can kind of see just how freaking ham-fisted away to look at an issue or a set a very complicated set of issues like you do have some real stuff going on with culture and then there's the question is like are certain cultural values better than others that's a legitimate question you could take yeah. race out of it completely right better insofar as accomplishing let's say schoolwork i i sure pulled up i mean some... it's always goal oriented there's always yeah. some goal oriented when, when you say better and worse. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand values at all. And there's always got to be a goal for a value to mean anything. It's better at or worse at achieving some outcome. Yeah. Um, so, right, if, if we're talking about certain kinds of societal outcomes, whether it's lowered criminality, whether it's, uh, you know, higher levels of GDP, if we want to go in a very neoliberal analysis or capitalist analysis, whatever these outcomes are, you know, whatever it is that the Gini index measures, there's lots of different indices that could be cooked up to to look at what's going on in terms of outcomes and trying to do better by those outcomes. And it's a very valid question at that point is do certain values. And this has nothing necessarily to do with race. Right. We could take a bunch of boys to, you know, Boy Scout type thing. We could take a bunch of boys or it could be kids that don't have to be boys, I guess. I was just thinking of the robber's cave experiment where it was all boys and uh from 19 to 1950s. Did you expand on that? What's that experiment? We will come back to it, yes. Okay. And we could basically take them and, you know, move some to one location, move the others to some other location, and literally raise them with different values and then see what happens. And it doesn't matter what their racial demographics of those groups or those sex, gender, gender it doesn't matter what they are. And you could, you, you could see, like, that if you have... Uh, a value of punctuality, certain things might happen. And if you have a value that says that punctuality is, you know, uh, constraining and it reduces freedom. So you have this kind of like, I don't know, lackadaisical approach to, to yeah. showing up on time, then you can see what happens in certain outcomes. We can measure if we did, we don't do experiments on humans anymore like that, but that 
what that did happen in the robber's cave experiment uh in in the 1950s so i always get messed up and think that it's Henri tajfeld but i don't think it was uh i forget who the experimenter was who did the robber's cave experiment people can look it up it's easy to find he took two groups of teenage boys like 12 13 something like that mostly I, I think they had basically the same demographic background i think they were all there's racially homogenous um upper middle class i think was the uh the the class demographic and he took them to this camp called robber's cave and he separated them into two groups that did not know about the existence of each other so he brought them in separately i guess and he called, I think, one of them the eagles and one of them the rattlesnakes. And he, the first week or so they were at Robber's Cave at this kind of campground, they went in the cabins and the whole thing. They went through these various like group bonding exercises, like draw pictures of, make T-shirts for, or flags for your rattlesnake or your eagle or whatever. And then he started selectively exposing the groups to one another, but in kind of nasty, underhanded ways. And so he, and again, this is just like a week. And so he starts like the you know the common picnic area. Well, he's got it all rigged up to where they you know eat at different times so they don't know about each other. Well, then he kind of just introduces this idea. Hey, by the way, there's another group here at Robbers Cave, and they they're also here. So then he takes them to the to the the, the, the lunch place and it's like trashed. And he's like, well, the other group trashed it, right? And then he trashes it again and brings the other and the other group trashed it, and. Um, starts kind of like selectively doing this and then kind of letting them see each other off in the distance or whatever. And it's kind of this organized thing. And it turns out these kids went like full freaking Lord of the flies and they had to end it and like send them home. Cause they're like basically ready to kill each other. Huh. Uh, it was all out war between these two groups of boys. And the only reason that they had any idea of, of group identity, it wasn't values, but uh, group identity was that you're the Eagles, and you're the uh, rattlesnakes or something like that. And then um, you're now in like, comp you, you have this nice place, you've had your group identity built up. And then there's this rival group that's screwing things up and they stole, you don't get to have lunch today because they ate all the lunch. You know, it got nastier as it went on. Yeah. Um, and it real. I mean, it's the, it's the experiment upon which, uh, I, and this is where Henri Tajfil's name comes up, social identity theory was was more or less devised saying that human beings form groups that they imbue social identity into and that the social identity groups exhibit as it's kind of developed what you might call parochial altruism or what they call parochial altruism so um the group that you identify with you're willing to forgive bad yeah. behavior rather generously yeah. and meanwhile a, a disdain or distrust or even hostility toward the other group or groups starts to rise up yeah. and so i've actually been trying to tweet for a few months and people are like shut up nerd and i'm like the variable of the decade is social identity we are really dumping a lot of relevance into social identity categories whether those are political identity categories like republican or democrat or like conservative or progressive or liberal or libertarian or whether those are now and this is why I worry about these identity theories, identity groups. Um, and those are scary because you can't change that. You, you you could change yourself from a Democrat to a Republican with either, you know, any number of different things could lead to such a change. 
you're not changing who you were born as. You're not changing your accidents of birth. And so when you start imbuing social identity into identity categories like this, you start running into some big problems. So maybe now we're going to hit upon something that's worth talking about. Um, Helen and I are writing a thing right now that we've actually been struggling with. It's since Wait, cynical a thing you say. Not- so is it going to be a pop-up book this time? I hope so. I hope so. Boom. Penis. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's the first image she came to. Okay. Well, it is because of what I've been doing the last two hours. Okay. So, <laughs> Let's just leave that hanging there. <laughs> well, Sorry. it's hanging now. <laughs> two it hours. Up earlier. <laughs> but no, uh, we actually are writing an essay right now that's getting to be quite long that directly challenges the, the core idea of critical race theory. And in particular, the title of a famous book within in this line of thought, the, uh, our essay is going to be titled How to Be Not Racist, because it says you can't be not racist. Yeah, you well, can't be not here's racist. an instruction for how to be not racist. Okay. And so um, in that sense, how to be not racist, you know, hopefully speaks into that void. How do we look at these issues uh, without making the errors of actual racism or making the errors of other actual racism called critical race theory. And it starts off by doing something that I think some people will find aggravating and controversial and in agreement again with the critical race theory types, I think we should change the definition of racism like Merriam Webster did, but not the way that Merriam Webster did. We should not use that stupid definition of systemic power, blah, blah, blah. But I think that actually my, now several years deep dive study into critical race theory has helped me understand racism in a different way. And I think that we can actually extract the definition that they, if they were consistent and even handed would have arrived at, and that it is a a genuine improvement on kind of a naive definition of racism. And so we offer the definition of racism that uh, racism is putting social significance into racial categories for the purposes of prejudice or discrimination. Hmm. So the second that you say white people are, or black people are, or Hispanic people are, or Latinos are, Latinx are, uh, with the purpose of engaging in prejudice or discrimination against that racial group, then you've already engaged in racism. And is racism wrong then? Does that racism yes. need to be rooted out? We think that that racism needs to be encouraged to be minimized and marginalized from society. Rooted out is, again, I come back, I question that assumption. That yeah. is a dangerous thing to do. But if you read the, the point of the essay is how to be not racist. If mm-hmm. you want to be not racist, you have to stop doing it. Yeah. But in certain respects, there are different cultures and they're all kind of funny, right? Germans are funny. Uh, Japanese people are are funny. Chinese people are funny. Like there's all these different people in groups and some of them kind of have racial similarities that it, you look at them from another group and there's something weird about them or other about them. And noticing that difference does lead to a form of, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad prejudice, but you're like, well, this group doesn't drive that well, or that group, you know, you can make fun of things. So if, I think that we can over-determine 
or put too I much agree. value on that noticing that difference and that noticing that difference is not going to go away without some right. very serious problems cognitively of ignoring right. all these things and then then igno- yep. ignoring the outcomes. So how do you That's separate right. uh, benevolent discrimination uh, from right. malevolent discrimination? Well, I think that the, that the words benevolent and malevolent pretty well do it. But the, the question is, of course, uh, issues of superiority and inferiority. And we actually do mention that technically in the, the actual definition we give, which wasn't in front of me, so I didn't mention it. Um, racial superiority and inferiority is really the crux of what's going on. So race X, Y, or Z is this way, and that makes them better or worse. That's kind of what racism is about. Whereas uh, race X, Y, or Z is like this, and that's different and kind of humorous or different and kind of endearing or different yeah. and just kind of different. Um and in fact, I, we, we do make the argument around that exact issue, though, of not confusing the race and ethnicity, right, um, in the sense of cultural ethnicity. Everybody knows uh, that it doesn't matter what skin color, it doesn't matter what your genes are. If we have, say, in the United States, somebody who was adopted at a very young age as a child, baby from China, for example, that grows up, this person is going to be culturally American and the fact that they're Asian doesn't change that fact. And if you were to take the reverse and you were to raise somebody culturally in China or literally, as you've heard occasionally, you these stories of like raised by wolves, they have, you know, completely different. Uh, it, the race is irrelevant, right? If we were to drop a white baby into China or a Chinese baby into America and then were to raise them in that cultural context, they would be Chinese or American overwhelmingly uh and if they were unaware of the existence of that other culture, there would never be any contradiction upon which a dialectic could take place. And they would just be. So this means that race is somehow separate from ethnicity in a fundamental way. And so minimizing, like to say, oh, Chinese people are funny, would be, if that's what we were going to say, would be that Chinese culture is funny. And it happens to be that the majority of people who have Chinese culture are also ethnically Han Chinese or whatever, or genetically, I guess, Han Chinese. And so in that case, you know, I think we do have to be more careful. And I actually do uh, encourage humor across those those divides, though, myself. And Helen actually turned me on to that, which is kind of funny because you hmm. you don't think of jokes when you think of Helen. Right? I'm just kidding. Of course. She's funny as hell, actually. Yeah. Um, but no, she's a big, big fan, especially of nationalist jokes. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is funny I mean, because she's absolutely not a nationalist, you know, in any way whatsoever. But she's always talking about, you know, English supremacy, nevertheless. Yeah. And she's joking about, as you said, the Germans. She's joking about the French. She told me recently that I wasn't allowed to joke about the French, that only they are I'm an American, so I can't because that becomes inappropriate. But the British can make fun of the French. Um And I was like, wow, there are all kinds of complicated rules. And, you know, they can tease the Irish and they can tease the person like four streets away that has a different accent in England uh, (laughs) because that's a different racial group or something. Um, But these jokes across these kind of boundaries, I think, soften the boundary. They allow for a lot of things that are kind of oversensitized situation that we're in now have negated. And. I think what you said, over-determining, I do think it's an overcorrection because previously, um, 
a lack of sensitivity was certainly there that was pretty ugly. And if you have to move one way or the other, you know, you want to move away from ugly stuff. But it turns out that too much medicine isn't cure. And so I feel like we've lost something going the other direction, being hypersensitive around um, these issues. You lose something important, which is, you know, in this case, we're talking about the social the, the social function of humor, right? That, that when I make a joke about your Pacific Northwestness and you make a joke about my hee-haw Appalachia Southness. Your sword play. When you make a joke about my sword play. Um, yeah, when, when we do this, though, what we actually do, whether it's across barriers of culture or race or identity or politics or religion or just one human being to another, we actually are introducing a soft way in which we can navigate where are the feelings going to get hurt? Where are the issues? I can float a joke. Um, and if you found what I said offensive, then it's very easy for me to say, I'm sorry, I was just joking, and you to understand you were, it was an, a bad attempt at humor. And now we've brought up the issue of, of an uncomfortable line that can be discussed in a more frank way mm-hmm. without it having been this like explosion of what did you mean by that? You know, and this whole yeah. really, ne- I was just trying to be funny. It went wrong. Let's talk about it. Let's have an, a mature conversation about it. So, and then on the other hand, if I float the joke and you laugh and you float a joke back and I laugh, now we know that that's in the safe zone, right? And now we can talk a little bit more frankly around that. And I know that you're not going to flip out if I cross that. So when we talk about like things that create the sense that we have to walk on social eggshells. You have to figure out where the eggshells are. And these little kinds of attempts at humor and jokes, the so, one of the social functions of humor is to find the eggshells. Uh, and if we take that away or if we throw extra eggshells on the ground uh, instead, we lose the ability to relate to one another in a, in a way that's very natural to humans and that we probably evolved. Like, why do we laugh at all? We probably evolved partly as a means of being able to uh, socially navigate across weird differences. Um, I want so to I double back to yeah, double back because I went everywhere to that ethnicity argument. And I'm thinking about these statistics that I found from a very local school here, local school district, where they broke down all the gaps, right? They showed the gaps. And what they did, and this is the first time that I've seen an actual institution do it, but they've probably been doing it before, was it's white and Asians and then people of color. And, and that's how the gap is gone. So you don't know if white people are actually they're hiding the Asian supremacy, right? And then they're bundling it with the white supremacy on these outcomes, finishing school, proficiency in English, proficiency in math. But I'm thinking, I'm trying to get into the head of of a teacher who's really trying to solve this problem. And that ethnicity argument doesn't really work because if they're all Americans and we're all just in this bland American thing, the outcomes should be equal. But the rate, if you divide these statistics according to race, they're not equal. And then you can append, especially to black Americans, you can append this very real story of, of struggle mm-hmm. and of being put down. And then you somehow upload that into the present 
And one response right. to my coming out with an actual statement on social media, which I try to avoid, was that a very kind, very loving school teacher said, I do believe in race, uh, critical race theory. It's not a bad thing. I'm always aware of my whiteness, and I'm trying to do the best to soften those differences that cause those outcomes. If that is the outcome of critical race theory, what is wrong with that? And how can it be uh, bettered, or how does that translate into the negative outcome that I see. Right. Yeah. If, if that is the, uh, intent of critical race theory, which I would argue that it is not, uh, by the definition of critical, as a matter of fact, the thing is, is that the, the critical mindset, if it were the beautiful picture on the box that we're just going to try to be more aware of our biases. Yes. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a thing that liberal societies, A, have been doing, and B, should continue to do, and I think, C, should continue to do better. If I were to take the whole image of the woke moment that's upon us and say, what do we take positively from this? We put it in cynical theories. We put it, uh, we've put it in a number of things. We've spoken about it a number of times. We definitely can listen better than we have. There's been too much arrogance by the people who think that they know everything and too little willingness to listen to people who whose lived experience is not tantamount to data, but whose lived experience is informative of something that should inspire proper, deeper inquiry. If that's what critical race theory were about, or if that could be salvaged from critical race theory, that would be fine. It would be fine and good, as a matter of fact, to dig into this and develop it and redo it. Helen and I have even openly said this. You take several of these theorists, like um, yeah. Jose Medina, for example, is a big name in critical race theory and in, in um, epistemology. And his work is frankly brilliant, as long as you fix his basic assumptions. If you okay, were to so read... How do you fix those basic assumptions? Take everything he does that he has any belief connects to race and replace race with ideology, like real ideologies. And almost everything he says is extraordinarily insightful. Okay. So it's like the assumptions are wrong. And so with critical race theory, the assumption, of course, is that you have all these kind of variables that you've sort of alluded to just now and that those are the relevant variables. But my claim would be that the, there are other variables and this isn't even necessarily getting into the critical thing that I started to do, which is Marx's conflict theory, period. That's a problem on its own. Yeah. Um, but there are other variables in play. There are relevant socioeconomic and cultural factors that are genuine variables that correlate strongly with race, sometimes for reasons that are genuine legacies of racism and sometimes for reasons that are not that are the actual variables in play. And so I would argue that the, 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 what we need to be doing is trying to identify the right variables and to understand those variables as well as possible and let that inform, say, if it's teachers or pedagogy or if, uh, if it's even training, you know, that's coming into a workplace or a government agency. Those trainers are using a pedagogy, so it should inform their pedagogy as well. In other words, we should be trying to understand the, the correct variables. And a, a more specific way of putting that would be there are lots of economic issues that statistically, and I know that this isn't the whole story, and I'm not trying to say it's the whole story, but there are a lot of economic issues in particular that are particular, or particularly strongly correlated with 
being black in America. The the racial wealth gap, for example, is tremendous. Um, I mean, it's staggering. And when you have a gigantic wealth gap, you definitely do have the argument that not everybody starts in the same place holds a lot more water, right? And so what do you do with that? Well, if the variable, and again, it's more com complicated than this, so I'm, I'm not trying to be reductionist, but if the variable that is um, causal is economic, you treat it as an economic problem. So in other words, you wouldn't give to race any more than race deserves. You would, you would leave as much of it in economics as possible. And then what's left over, you say, okay, let's go back to the issue of racial correlates and see what else is there. And then maybe it's cultural values. Maybe it's the fact that, that um, black families got torn apart, just absolutely torn apart. This has led to a black culture, in a particular black youth culture, in kind of a per persistent way and there's a question of how that happened. I think, you know, if you ask most people who have even been slightly conservative, I was speaking with a former outright critical theorist and Marxist yesterday who now is a deep critic of woke culture. He was a professor at NYU, Michael Rechtenwald. And he says that Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program did more to rip apart black families and, and to, to change the structure of black cultural identity than maybe anything in American history, post-slavery. Those different variables need to be looked at, I think, as honestly as possible. And my, my belief is that, like you said, if, if critical race theory did that very kind of polished picture version of what it's claiming, being more aware of our biases, being more aware that we do tend to have cultural identities that correlate strongly with race for certain reasons and that those may or may not have impacts, and they may, in particular, biases or, or cross-cultural um, challenges when we try to talk with one another that may or may not apply. I think that, that that would be at least relatively insightful, if not the perfect way to approach the issue, but at least valuable. But instead, you have this root and conflict theory, you know, that we're the two groups, one's oppressor and one is oppressed, and they're in conflict for social resources with one another. One is therefore victimizing the other. Each has its own form of false consciousness that this is the, the right state of affairs of society. So their dominance and oppression are, are internalized, as they say. Like, this is just a freaking poisonous way to look at it. But also the overdetermination of race as a causal variable, I think, is another dangerous thing there. It's one thing to say, well, I'm more aware of my own racial identity, which is very friendly Mm -hmm. way of looking at something that comes mm -hmm. often out of critical race theory. It's another thing entirely to say that race is socially determinant and that we've all been socialized by the machinations of society to believe that there, first of all, that there is a racial hierarchy and to believe that racial hierarchy should be maintained or fought in a very kind of Manichaean struggle uh, of liberationism, as it's called. There it seems to be, and this is just my point of view, and I look at, at a lot of news, I look at a lot of video, I'm watching the cultural uh, kind of soup, and so I'm really looking at the foam. So it might not be really real, um, but it does have some sort of effect. It might be the case that thinking about blackness, thinking about whiteness, is very attractive. It, it bundles, it, it really excites our narrative neurons, and we just mm -hmm. we can we can it can really kind of possess us, and it's a really easy way 
of thinking and then of, you know, deciding on what's moral. Mm-hmm. How would we replace that overdetermination of race, um, extract that from critical race theory and, you know, plug something in that's less divisive? I mean, where I was mentioning before that if we kind of reimagine Medina in terms of ideologies rather than in terms of race and without seeing things like whiteness and blackness sort okay. of as ideologies. So define an ideology. That's a really uh, porous so, term. In, yeah, it is. Uh, so in this case, ideology would be, you know, something approaching a, a way of viewing the world in one's place within it. Uh, kind of an overarching explanation for who we are or as, as a, especially as a political group um, or as a group that interacts with the world and society within the world. Um, so you could see things like religions as, as possessing ideologies, for example, about their relationship to, to essentially everything. The, the knowledge, each other, society, how society should be structured. But I think that that's the kind of the, the key component there when we're talking about ideologies is that they are sort of not necessarily fully totalizing, but really grand sweeping explanations for, for how society should be organized and what people's relationship to society and other members of society happens to be. And so, uh, if we were to, so, so for example, in critical race theory, they posit that whiteness is an ideology or that white supremacy is the ideology that that the various features that we associate with, with white culture, aka whiteness, should be maintained and should have primacy. So that's where you see that horrific graphic that the African National African American Museum from the Smithsonian that they put out about the, the features of white culture and hard work, sense of individualism, it, it, it's, science. It's really <laughs> a fun and interesting thing to drop that thing in front of some some black people and just let them go because they're like, "What is this?" Oh my gosh, I had a wonderful conversation about that the other night for, with Heterodox Academy, and it was just like, <laughs> you know, this guy's eyes just kept getting bigger and bigger yeah, when yeah. he was talking about it. It's just like, holy crap, yeah. And of course, you kind of see up there in Washington, you're going to run into that attitude a lot. Um, so they see this as actually like, uh, so when I say ideology, you, know, you kind of think of it as like a, a a set of cultural values, and then b a belief that society should be ordered around those and, yeah. and how to achieve that. Yeah. And so if we were to we, we take a step back and we were to say, okay, so maybe conservatism. It's not, I mean, this is low resolution to say conservatism. Maybe that's an ideology, right? So if we organize around conservatism and progressivism and libertarianism, and you could think of the different political ideologies for structuring society, if we were to organize around those instead, we would have, in a sense, different values. So what I'm trying to, to, to get to is what could we unplug and then plug back in is sort of superordinate identities. So it's rather than you're in the rattlesnakes and I'm in the eagles, we're now going to say, wait, we're all kids at Robber's Cave, right? And so you want to try to find that superordinate identity. And there are ways that are known that, that are effective to do this. I hear it come up over and over and over again. Um, Eric Smith was the guy I was speaking with the other night with Heterodox. He's got this book about um, anti-racism and how it's basically a theory of disempowerment. But mm-hmm. he's all hooked up into the psychological world uh, of, of what's called empowerment theory. Um, that kind of has echoes of what Chloe Valdery is doing with her theory of enchantment. So there are these different 
ways of looking at these these kinds of issues um, that are leaning into that kind of empowerment rather than disempowerment. And what they 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 draw upon there is that finding commonality by doing things together with a common goal when you, when you have something to do where there are stakes like either you build a table or you don't build the table to kind of refer to that kind of famous i think heineken commercial or whatever beer it was either you you know with the military it's like you complete the obstacle course as a team or you don't or you complete the mission when it's real as a team or you don't and everybody comes home or they don't you know when you have something that's bigger than the individual identities of any of the people, a common goal, mm-hmm. turns out these smaller identity factors fall away. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because there are a lot of things that we know about social identity. There are a lot of things we know sort of about their 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 kind of evolutionary antecedents. Like how do humans become groupish? What do we group around? What do we tend to group around? And it, so it's just like with the experiment with Robbers Cave. You know, you give people different colored shirts, you call them this team, you call them that team, and tend to people automatically start to group around social identity, even when it's utterly arbitrarily defined. I think there was a study I read about in one of these, probably an atheism book talking about this years ago, um, where I think all they did was got people basically in a room like a gymnasium, and they put people, some people on one side of the room and some people on the other side of the room or had them come in through two different doors or something like that. And that was enough to where they related to the people in their own group and had a sense of social identity with, with those people and against the other people. And so yeah. they're, they're these really sensitive factors. So the question is, yeah. if that's how human beings and brains work, yeah. the real question is, how do we nourish bene- beneficial ways of yeah. forming social identity rather than than divisive and toxic ones the answer would be lean into that right yeah there i'm working through a book and i don't know the title or the author but i'm reading it a lot and he's talking about rationalism as this uh, imperialism that's that's swallowing other cultures and he's writing in 1976 the year i was born and he's talking about how technology goes in and strips cultures of its individuality and all of a sudden Chinese people can speak science and English people can speak science, but they're losing, everybody's losing uh, something to get into this cultural mix that is science or this, this rationality Mm -hmm. that's based on Western values that ignores Mm -hmm. or destroys other values. So taking that as, and you go to that gymnasium where people are going in through different doors and that gymnasium, once it seems like there's this line of criticism that says liberalism itself is a form of stripping us of our individuality. And if, if you take that background of all these different identities able to interact and you say that the background itself is an identity that needs to be resisted and it, it, it seems like there is a strain in critical thought that's trying to destroy that fabric of liberalism or it's questioning yeah. it and seeing if it's stable enough to allow right. for the flexibility of individual identities. But what it's being replaced with is a even more divisive pitting everybody against each other because that whiteness or that blandness or that Western liberalism itself is the enemy. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Cause it's tied to capitalism yeah, and all these other things. And so I think that this is actually a general, um, 
a general error that's committed by these kinds of analysts who sort of are looking, I always kind of describe it as looking at the problem through the wrong end of the telescope. Um, you know, so everything gets small and distorted and hard to make out because you've got the telescope turned around backwards. Um, so you're not getting a better view, but a worse view of what you're looking at. Hmm. And so I feel as though they've lost sight of the fact that, again, cultural values being values are goal directed. And human beings, of course, there is there isn't necessarily a zero sum, you know, equation in terms of what's going on in people's heads or what people's heads have room for or how many ways they can partition their mind palaces, if you will. But at the end of the day, if one of your goals is to answer questions about physical reality, there are better and worse ways to do that. And uh, it's easy to call it imperialism and say Western values to say that science is going off. But it's also easy to recognize that if Science had been, and I mean science is kind of, I'm not a Platonist myself, but it's kind of its platonic ideal. Uh, You know, we have this deferral to falsification and empiricism. We try to to use rationalism and mathematical consistency uh, to to formulate our theories. We're We're going to always defer to the experiment. We're going to use an assumption of universality that it doesn't matter who performs the experiment. The result is the same. If it falls out of reality, you know, the kind of fundamental, it wouldn't matter again, which culture, some of the window dressing might be different, Mm -hmm. but wouldn't really matter which culture devised the thing. It would still be largely the same because these principles actually are devoted to trying to understand what's going on in a material reality that is separate from ourselves. Uh, You could say, oh, well, it's still the European context, but it was very different European contexts in the 17th century and even 16th, late 16th century in England and in Germany. And yet you have Newton and Leibniz developing who have very different life philosophies, very different perspectives, totally different languages, both developing calculus within a very small amount of time of one another. And other than the notation, in other words, the window dressing, the ideas are the same. The ideas are very, very, I mean, almost, they are isomorphic because it's the same ideas. And so, you you miss something when you say science or uh, you know, which is a methodology that's meant to achieve a particular goal in the world is merely a cultural value and it's repl- displacing other cultural values. You said something that was really interesting that I want to get back to, but it might be the case that science is uh, causing all of our cultures to be more and more materialistic, more and more goal-oriented. You said yourself just a little bit ago that material reality is separate from us. That we're describing something separate from us. That that's a direct quote. What what do you mean? How are we? So I should be. I should actually nuance that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. We are actually. Let me just clarify. We are a part of material reality. We are subject to material reality ourselves. So we are not totally separate from. But nobody's personal opinion affects material reality at all, right? So if something happens, if a tree falls in the forest, did it make a sound? You know. If something happens out in, in reality somewhere that we are not yeah and somebody else observes it or or it, whatever it doesn't matter our our subjective experience is immaterial to what actually happened it is mm-hmm. something that is actually outside of ourselves we are limited to our subjective experience of what happened trying to describe it and trying to communicate it and trying to understand it 
and then to to hopefully get a fuller picture by bouncing subjective experiences off of one another and finding the sources of error and miscalculation or whatever. But what I mean is that, as the, the atheist kind of used to say, reality doesn't really care what what you think, right? Or as Ben Shapiro would put it, is that facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, feelings don't care about facts either, though. So um, if we if you have to pick which way deferral goes, right, to experiment or to theory, we always have to defer to experiment because reality doesn't have a stake in the outcome, whereas individuals may. So what I'm actually referring to when I say that is a, is a degree of impartiality. Right. So if we want to if we were to adopt the idea that having impartial resolutions to questions of fact is a valuable thing to do, any culture that settles upon that and it has sufficient amount of time to develop it is going to develop a very similar thing to what we call science. And most of what's different will be window dressing. Um, it may have asked different questions. It may have proceeded at different speeds. It may have discovered different things so far. It's some better and some that needed to be discovered that haven't been yet. But you're basically going to end up with the same thing. And so, I mean, a, another way to put it, of course, would be why did the Chinese, who have a very well-developed system of medicine, what they still use and still believe in, why did they take up Western medicine? at all was it really that a very closed very proud openly racist society was like oh yeah we'll just let ourselves get taken over by these hmm. white people that we actually in the third century were describing as obviously descended from monkeys from europe no it's probably not what they were thinking they're probably thinking holy shit if somebody gets cancer and you use these methods it gets rid of the cancer and they live longer yeah so the outcome is independent of the theory. And if you start to have a value of maybe we should try to get right answers about the world, yeah, you, you're going to end up with, with that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And you do see it the opposite direction. Science is ultimately very pragmatist. So one of the things within pharmacology, where does it look for inspiration for new medications and to understand uh, different therapies? Not to Chinese medicine, to various indigenous medicines, so you know, people who lived in this corner of the rainforest eat this leaf or chew on this leaf when they have this particular problem. Why? Probably because they've, for generations, figured out that people who chew that leaf uh, have a reduction in their symptoms or a cure of the problem or whatever it happens to be. And so then they they say, well, there might be something to that. And then they look at this and then they try to figure out, you know, what pharmacologically is going on. There's yeah. still a lot of an open question and mystery about how Chinese medicine works when it works and when it doesn't mm -hmm. you know there have been absurd numbers of studies on acupuncture within western science to try to figure out if or if so how and when and when it doesn't work this means that there's already this respect right for for the other culture's Thanks, approach because yeah. it might have answers that we don't have okay and um which is kind of, in a sense, if you look at it cynically, that is imperialism. I'm going to appropriate whatever works right. into my sure. in, into my uh, understanding of the world. Right. It, it, and if you look at it not cynically, it's human universality, and uh, we're all human beings at the end of the day, and our differences are relatively small from one group to another. Our nationalities and our cultural mores are, in some sense, significantly arbitrary around a kind of central core of what it means to be human 
And so if we kind of look at these different cultural approaches as approximations on human flourishing, there's information about human flourishing, but each one's just an approximation. I mean, there's a lot of appeals to this universal humanity and then universalism within science. You know, if the Chinese cook up this particular herbal brew and their theory is because, you know, it decreases wind and it increases kidney yang and it and it decreases, you know, heart yin and all of these things, and then it creates this result. It is possible to try to figure out if that consistently works, why it consistently works, and under which conditions it works. And there are there there's a lot of actually free flow of information back and forth. So you can say that's imperialism, or you can say that it's actually taking the benefit of the idea that we're all kind of one species dealing with one reality that we share that we've had for various accidents of history, different approaches at looking at, and that those are going to provide insights and benefits. And of course, that's the very charitable view of the uh, claim to like, we need to decolonize science. We need to get rid of this one hardcore, you know, Western centric view, but not taken too far. Uh, hmm. open-mindedness, but not so open your brains fall out, as Richard Dawkins used to say yeah, when he was yeah. talking about religion. But I think it applies even much more strongly to, to cultural either acceptance or not quite relativism, but like dipped in that direction, right? Hmm. It'd be culturally chauvinistic and imperialist to say, oh, Chinese medicine is stupid because obviously we have Western medicine, which is better. This is a very, very chauvinistic thing that I actually hear um, from a lot of atheist people. You know, well, if it was really, if, it, if Chinese medicine worked, it would just be called medicine, you know? And it's like, you guys are all woke. That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> Why is universality under attack then? Let's bring it back, frame it back in terms oh, because of critical... Objectivity is under Objectivity is under attack. So... I, I keep on picturing that that um, that gymnasium yes. with all these different uh, groups. If you start to deny that the gymnasium is there, you, all you have is the groups, and the groups right. don't have any common ground because that which holds them they can never be attached to. So there's no common That's ground right. there. That objectivity, That's that, right. that place to land on, is gone. Right. There's no so way you have to a step outside of of yourself and out of the group perspective. Okay. Right. So a good example from the history of science, I keep saying this, so I'm going to probably end up sticking it in a podcast. I'm trying to plan a podcast of it, of, of objectivity itself, so this is probably going to go in there. And I need to look up the, I, you know, it's like I'm trying to plan it, so I need to look it up and get it all right and get the details. Yeah. And I don't know them yet. I've just read about it a couple of times in the past. But the, the, the origin story of the science of geology is actually very instructive. Hmm. So you essentially had uh, two different groups of proto-geologists who were not yet geologists because they weren't really doing geology yet, who had very different views about how the world and the rocks in the world came to form. And one particular niche question within that, which is, of course, a big question, is that the ocean floor, the rock under the, the seafloor is called basalt, Okay. And so there was a question, how, where does basalt come from? And we're talking, you know, beginning of the 19th century, so a couple hundred years ago. And there were two competing schools of thought. One were the Vulcans and one were the Neptunians. 
And I know it sounds so funny. It's like a Star Trek episode, like steampunk Star Trek or something. It's so hard not to laugh. But the two competing hypotheses were that it has to do with undersea volcanic activity, which turns out to be true, or it is the Neptunians would have believed that it was somehow precipitate that was falling down out of the seawater and and, uh, forming a sediment on the seafloor, which is actually where some other uh, sort of, it's a little more complicated, but that's like where limestone comes from. So um, limestone Mm -hmm. is is calcium carbonate or bicarbonate, one or the other, I don't know. Uh, But that comes from the the little tiny seashells, which actually comes out of the seawater that the marine animals make. So it turns out that both of these are processes that actually happen, but the question was on oceanic basalt. What makes that? And they were to they were doing cancel culture, man. I mean, these two groups, they were your rattlesnakes and your uh, the eagles. rattlesnakes and your eagles. I almost call them Neptunians again, going at each other. They had the, it was to the point where they were like mudslinging, they were publishing like bogus fake articles like slandering each other and then in newspapers. I think one of the, the facts of the matter was that the spouse of one of the leading scientists on one side or the other, if we'll call it proto-scientists, like it was a playwright or had something to do with, with, with productions of plays. And there was some play that was being done in the, in the, in the theater. And it's like the other team showed up and like booed and heckled and like threw tomatoes, like to just ruin their lives. And so you have this guy who's sort of the hero that he's considered the father of modern geology. Huh. Um, and I don't even remember his first name. It's Lyell is his last name, L-Y-E-L-L. And so he decides that apparently that this is just, I don't know, he could be a horrible figure of history. I don't even know. But in this action, he was pretty good. He pulled together a conference where he got them together or contingents, you know, ambassadors from each side that we're not going to fight. We're going to have a conference and we're going to figure out how to settle this. And they convened and decided at Lyle's discretion that we're going to hold on, look at the rocks. We're going to go study the actual rocks instead of yelling back and forth with all of our various <laughs> theories and hypotheses that are not being yeah. tested. And geology was born out of this weird uh, insight that maybe we should look at rocks um, and, and see what they're made out of and then yeah. compare that with other things, you know. And so within a decade or so, geology was actually off to the races as a legitimate science. And it turns out that the volcano people were right, uh, but they were still wrong because they were talking about it in terms of, you know, the wrong terms. They weren't talking about science in terms of uh, empirical terms. So this is very instructive, right? Because what the, if we go back to our groups in the gymnasium, and yeah. you very clearly said, you know, there's the gymnasium, or there's not, if we get rid of the gymnasium, there's no point of common reference. So the claim when I said something earlier about us being separate from reality is that's a point where neither political group or social group or identity group or whatever group can say, well, this is mine and only mine, right? And then there's a thing outside of both of them. Like if you happen to be whatever politics and you and I both happen to look at the same tree, we're probably going to come out with, and I know they like to say, well, you might describe the bark and I might describe the leaves. That's bullshit. If we gave a relatively, you know, we picked a feature and we both described it, our feature, our description of the feature are probably going to be really similar, though maybe in different window dressing. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 
having that thing outside of the group yeah that's bigger than the group that they get to then decide they get to then defer to with religions yeah. it's always god that's the thing that's bigger than everything yeah so they you know then you get these doctrines you know in islam there is no race there's you're you're a muslim or you're not but in christianity there's neither jew nor greek or, uh, slave nor free blah 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 however that that shows up twice in the bible that same um concept and so you're just one in christ jesus so the the body of christ as the church is is a thing and everybody's caught within that so this is finding that thing that's bigger than and separate from the individual identities that's so key to breaking down the divisiveness yeah. objective reality is by definition that which is minimally subjective because we can't get there perfectly so it's always separate from the individuals to the greatest possible degree. It's always something that's as far outside of your subjective opinion versus my subjective opinion. So this is where, in critical race theory, we see the forwarding of lived experience as authoritative. Yes. If it's that's a, what I was going to say. That's the, a, that's, that's the trap door where they come in. Because once you start to study Kyle Rittenhouse... You can yes. see him as a white supremacist, or you can actually look at the facts. But once we start to study not just objective reality, but intentional beings in reality, once we start to study what somebody did and why they did that, then right. then where where's the objectivity there? How do we establish standards? We develop standards for this. You know, if we we start within in Western societies, for example, example we have the assumption of innocence or presumption, I should say, of innocence. Uh, and then, so we start from there, that we're not going to hold somebody accountable for something that we can't prove. If intention comes into it, there it's not like this is, you know, it's not perfect and it gets murky. But there it begins, of course, with asking somebody, what were you doing? What were your intentions? Why were you doing it? And then seeing if that yeah. lines up with the available evidence. And when it fails to, you have increasing reasons to believe that the person's being dishonest and misrepresenting their intentions. Yeah. But you always begin with charity. Life. You always begin with charity. I, I think so, because if you don't, then um, it's so easy to get stuck. It's just so easy to get stuck. The second that I think you must have some malevolent motive underneath, like sometimes my wife, I called her, I got her. It was not good. I, we had a big argument about something. I don't remember what, but it's one of these things where it just kind of bubbles up over time. Yeah. And finally, I got her a few months ago, and I was like, I don't know another way to say this. You're doing critical gym studies. It's like you're looking for, like, my malevolent intent that's not matching my real intent. Okay. It's like you're looking for that negative assumption. Yeah. And if you switch to a presumption that I'm being that I'm approaching the issue innocently and genuinely then we could have a more productive conversation because it what was happening and I'm not trying to put her on the spot because she's great of course but um, well we all do that. what was happening is I would say you know here's what I was thinking as I approached that problem and she'd be like uh-huh and I was like would you stop doing that? Would you stop assuming that when I tell you, when I open up to you and tell you what my in intentions and motivations were, it, would you stop assuming that they must be other than what they were? Because you can't get anywhere. And it's kind of this 
funny irony with like critical race theory because they're all like shut up and listen right it's yeah. like listen 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 you're not listening to us we haven't been heard it, even with the whole thing that, that erupted around george floyd i can't breathe right well the implication is well if you would have listened to somebody saying i can't breathe maybe you would have acted differently you're not listening you're not listening you're not listening and so there's this little bit of irony right where the automatic uncharitable interpretation prevents you from being able to listen so that's where it becomes divisive that's where your truth and my truth there's no bridge across that if we can't find a the truth that we're willing to agree exists and find that's an objective standard there's no ability for me to hear you and take you at your word if i'm constantly assuming that uh some self-interested or willfully ignorant motivation is preventing you from just believing what I'm actually saying, right? You you have to, the the assumption under these critical theories is that if you don't accept what the person who's claiming to be oppressed is saying at face value, then you're being willfully ignorant or self-interested or asserting power or trying to preserve your perpetuating or an accomplice of supremacy of some sort. Correct. And that is, it's, it's, I mean, in the classic sense, it's a non-starter. You can't go anywhere from there. Okay. Right? Yeah. And Except so, for acceptance. Except to become an ally. To either bow or, or flee. Acceptance, yeah. In, in the, the, the kind of wrong way to use the word of acceptance. Um, acquiescence uh, or whatever. Yeah, it's bend the knee is what it is. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and then, then adopt this dishonored subordinate position called uh, called allyship. Um, as a result, um, so if, if which is why when somebody goes into one of these apologies, by the way, these kind of like we just saw from the Ford Foundation guy over over tone deaf, uh, they they lose all their authority. Nobody nobody trusts them anymore. They because why? Because they've now in, relegated themselves. Like we understand intuitively this stuff much more rigorously than we can intellectually. Like human beings perceive other human beings, and they're like, oh, all your social status <laughs> gone. Because yeah. what he's done by making the apology the way that he did was accepted subordinate status. No, you don't listen to people in subordinate status. That's the end of that. Hmm. And we perceive that intuitively extremely well. Uh, and I think that that's something that people need to understand about cancel culture. The point is to try to get you to accept subordinate status. And then uh, basically and then be a null then factor or something. Yeah, because nobody listens to people in subordinate status. It, it seems to be to try to get back to that looking at things as ideologies or to understand the playing field as groups. It seems that um, from time to time, one group forms a very dogmatic ideology or an ideology goes dogmatic, by which I mean one ideology um, claims to want to claim everything else one or, or in another way of, of saying thing robin d'angelo critical race theory kendi they want to be the gem they want to say this is what the they want to redefine the gem in terms that center them or at least center whatever is underneath them no, that's, right. Into that. that's right white supremacy did this earlier too right white supremacy definitely did that when the critical race theorists do their archaeology of history and they say white the white race all of the races, the black race, in their modern socially constructed forms, were devised by white people who wanted to justify their atrocities um, using the very earliest inklings of kind of scientific knowledge about inheritability 
to justify colonialism, to justify slavery. So they imbued these racial categories with social significance that gave the rise. Whiteness was the property of white people that was maintained by white supremacy. So the ideology there was white supremacy, that, that whiteness deserves to be in that position and thus white people deserve to be the beneficiaries and that white people get to determine who these cultural aristocrats are. So if we run into the Irish, they can exclude them at first and treat them as though they're a racial minority and mm -hmm. then later decide, mm -hmm. no, you're white enough and let them in. They, they're not wrong in the way that they actually analyze that. Uh, what they're wrong in is that they don't let go of it. They've reinvigorated it, which yeah. is a different thing, right? And so that was something bad that happened at the very front end of, of the science of heritability, which I wouldn't even call science. Nobody would recognize it as science now. It wouldn't even probably qualify as natural philosophy, but they did at least have the idea of looking at material reality to figure out, huh, Every time black people have a baby together, it's black. You know, it doesn't matter if they're in Africa or if they're in Scotland. It's yeah. always when two black people have a baby, it comes out black. Maybe it has something to do with the parents and not the environment, because mostly people believe that race had a lot to do with the environment at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, more than the, the, nobody had any idea. I mean, if we go back even further, you have that thing in the Bible where it's like you striped stick and you'll get striped sheep or something like that. It's just yeah. completely wrong. Um, how did, how did, how did, that white supremacy resolve how what what ideas within liberal western society? okay so okay yeah so so how we did that all created equal that's a profound freaking idea like, which kind of goes back to christianity there, then or it's a relative of that. you know a lot of it did a lot of it did derive from from christian values a lot of it derived from some of the things that calvin pointed out specifically not that i'm a calvinist and not that i really am all that fond of calvinism to my calvinist friends i'm sorry if that truth is uncomfortable for you but these some of these observations were really you know insightful and then you have these kind of thinkers at the late 18th century some of them in, in in England, some in Scotland, some of them in Europe, some of them in the Americas, like Jefferson and Madison, for who are grappling with these ideas, and that you know they have this kind of a background, and then they're thinking some of this isn't right, but some of it is right, and they have this new kind of, if you want to put it in like religious language, so let's lay down this new covenant that we're all equal. We start off equal. John Locke had the idea of the blank slate, which turns out to not only have been wrong, but dangerously wrong. But they started from this position. Let's start with this idea of the blank slate, and let's, we're all created equal. We all have also, this is when, you know, the, the, the theories of natural rights started to come into the picture. What would be, you know, was, when was it? It was in France, the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man or something like that uh, preceded the French Revolution by a number of, of years. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the, the, the background that's going on and thought at that time. And this new idea of that every person, they phrase it as men, is created, but every person starts off in some state of primordial equality. Mm -hmm. And every person has certain rights that, as they said, were, you know, imbued by his creator, such as a right to, these are pretty broad rights, yeah. right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, uh, yeah. If you look at it in most formulations, they also mention property or to maintain his own property. Yeah. Um, these kind of core assumptions started to let us really take 
a chisel to the rock of, say, white supremacy or whatever, and start chipping in patriarchy and start chipping these things away because the contradictions become obvious. When, when Marx talks about the dialectic of history, he's not just pulling nonsense out of his ass. You know, it's, you know he didn't just copy Hegel or whatever. There's something there that the, there's some these contradictions that occur like no if we had this and you see this reading the the like jefferson for example about slavery or washington talking about slavery you take this idea that all people are created equal but then they're faced with the living contradiction of that and they don't know how to resolve it because of political constraints which they're going to think are going to be ugly and nasty and human and brutish and still very much constraining so they end up with this big vision that we're going to start chipping away at this. These values over time, that dialectic of history over time starts to move, as uh, was phrased, yeah, the, the arc of history started to bend toward justice as a result. Um, and is that and so not these what principles CRT is trying that, to forward? Critical race in? theory on critical race theory on the surface is is it an extension? Of it thinks this process. it's trying to forward that. It thinks yeah. it's trying to forward that, right? So that's it believes and it has positioned itself in the minds of many as being that. It is actually the opposite. If you want to kind of characterize um, liberalism in a different way politically, what it turns out to be is a forceful step away from from feudalism and mercantilism. The, these these organizing principles that preceded it it's a step away from in particular feudalism feudalism is this idea that there are lords and and and, and they have Plus. control over sets of property and then yeah. people that live in that property have fealty to them and there's this relationship and there's this whole organization to society it's not wrong, and many people are, are recognizing this now, that the, the way critical race theory is going creates a new ethnic-based feudalism because it hollows people out into their identity groups and says that people's group identity, which would have been fealty to a particular lord or a particular region or a particular uh, city-state or whatever— their fealty to, to their identity becomes primary and everybody becomes an ambassador of their identity group. That's basically the premise of intersectionality is that your intersected identities form a unique identity. And when you have, when they say positionality must be intentionally engaged, they mean you are a critical theory imbued representative or ambassador of your, uh, of your, your group. identity group. Yeah. yeah. So, this is a this is turning things around backwards and going back away from those universal principles, the forwarding of the individual, the, the individual rights that that allowed us to chip away. And I say that the, in fact, and I tried to, I failed. It died in editing because my first draft of it sucked. But the chapter five of I actually have a copy. I keep looking at it. I just hold it up. No, Here's your book. Yeah, no product placement or anything. Cynical theory. New York chapter Times five is ignoring it. Yeah, it's about critical race theory, okay? And I could even pull out and find the page really quickly if I wanted to read the part where you can tell I tried to do this. I mean, I know where to look for it. And then the second half of it fell apart because it died in editing because I wrote it so badly on the first go. But what happened, and I really wanted to communicate this, I realized that when I was studying the history of racism according to critical race theory, 
is that you had this group of people that we will refer to as white supremacists because they were who decided we're going to put we're going to create these racial categories we're going to name them after skin colors we're going to imbue them with social significance that we claim to be rooted in biological features and facts in particular that black people are suited to work and that they're intellectually inferior and all of these kind of culturally inferior that they're brutish but they're great for field labor you know how convenient for a slave mm. trader to believe something like this and so they put these so these markers of social significance into the racial categories and then the arc that we tried to argue in the chapter is that liberalism is the set of philosophies that brought up the clarity of those contradictions uh, against, say, universal principles of man and, and the forwarding of genuine equality in, individual, uh, in the individual. And it chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and chipped away until finally we get the Civil Rights Act in 1964. If we're talking about the American context, we can talk about other contexts. At some point, you know, 1863... It abolished slavery, 1865, uh, the Civil War ended, and we start in this kind of new, renewed covenant of the United States. By 1964, we have the Civil Rights Act, and at least at the level of explicit wording of the law, we are now finally living up to the promise of the Constitution written so many years before. And right is that, so it's not like, oh, the Civil Rights Act passed, racism over. You know, it yeah, wasn't like yeah. that. Yeah. But then this continued to bear fruit. Companies had their, you know, they had to abide by the different titles. Title VI, I think, is the most relevant here. Universities, schools, everybody had to start playing by these rules. And institutional racism started to go away very effectively. Uh, it, you know, it attenuated very quickly. So by the time we start getting into the 70s, going into the 80s, these kind of radical activisms that were pushing for, you know, um, identity politics, racial identity politics in particular, in the various radical ways were really losing steam. And then all of a sudden you had a crop of scholars around 1990, plus or minus four or five years, who suddenly realized, wait a minute, we still have problems. That was their essential claim. Whether those are exaggerated or not, that's for, I think, rigorous analysis to look at and try to decide. But we still have these problems of race. It's 1994. It's 1987, whatever. It's not perfect yet. And one of the reasons is because people aren't paying attention to race like they used to. When we were doing the civil rights movement or our, our fathers and mothers were doing the civil rights movement, we paid attention to race very carefully. Nobody's really paying attention now. We have these new problems where racism is hidden within cultural aspects, within, you know, microaggressions or whatever it happens to be at different points, different ideas came up. Yeah. And we have to look harder at race than we have been. And rather than turning the knob up a little bit and distinguishing, as, as Helen and I talk about it, and they have it in their literature, the difference between colorblindness and racism blindness and making that more distinct and saying, well, there are still relevant issues and we still need to talk about this in these relevant ways. You have Kimberly Crenshaw following Bell Hooks very explicitly writing, there is a fundamental difference between the statement, I am black and I am a person who happens to be black. And that difference is 
the, a statement like, I ha- am a person who happens to be black, forwards universal humanity in front of racial identity, which is not productive for our politics. Oh, and so <laughs> they went the stick, wrong way. <laughs> stick the social significance right back in under the assumption that you can use this kind of liberationist paradigm to root out, as the language we've kind of been circling around, root mm-hmm. out the r- remaining problems which are we would say lesser much lesser than they were say in 1958 uh looking at say 1988 or 1998 much less than race problems were much less by 88 and 98 than they were in 58 they would say however and this is where that cynical critical approach comes that no this was this was very explicitly derek bell founder of critical race theory before kimberly crenshaw took it postmodern. His whole assessment was, nope, racism doesn't go away. It has a permanence. And there are these nice videos of him online that I saw circulating a few weeks ago. Racism is permanent. Not even it has a permanence, which is what he writes in Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Him explicitly saying racism is permanent. It is permanent. It is permanent. It doesn't go away. It change changes shapes. It changes forms. It hides. And so you have books like um, Patricia Hill Collins, who very famously wrote the book uh, Black Feminist Thought in 1990, which is where the matrix of domination from intersectionality comes from. She has another famous book called Intersectionality from the early 90s or mid 90s. Well, in 2000, I want to say four, but it might be eight. And it's possible it's six. But one of those, somewhere in that range, between four and eight, she published another book called Black Sexual Politics. And it's something, something, you know, it's always got like at least the subtitle has like three things. And then it's like, and the new racism. And her argument as far as the new racism, new racism is a term on my encyclopedia because of that. The new racism that she's referring to and other people around her time were referring to meant cultural racism. She explicitly says we've done away with biological racism. We don't say, you know, black people were, were born inferior because of genetic traits. This just doesn't happen anymore. We don't really have institutional racism anymore. There, you know, things don't always work out, but we actually do have the Civil Rights Act and so on. So that means that racism mostly hides in the fact that we have different cultures and white culture doesn't value black culture and blah, blah, blah. So what you have now is this belief and the very explicit belief that's very central from Derek Bell, the founder, through Patricia Hill Collins, a giant in the field some 25 years later very consistent belief that racism doesn't get better it hides better and so we see the progress from 1958 to 1998 they see something that's put on a tighter and nicer and cleaner mask that has to be picked apart and revealed that's the critical part of critical race theory that is the idea with critical theory is that you're going to pick apart and show the hidden stuff I was explaining to somebody the other day, a journalist called me and was trying to get his, it's really weird because normally if you're really careful talking to journalists and I just have these like calls, they're like, this is going to take two hours. It's going to all be off record because I just need to understand. And it's like, it's all off record. You can say whatever you want. Yes. Okay. So I, you know, I can shoot from the hip a little bit instead of having to be super careful. But we got talking about, he was like, I just can't figure out why they seem to hate their own people more than anybody else. And I'm not talking about racial groups. I'm talking about why does the left gnaw on the left that's like three quarters of a millimeter to its right? 
Whereas, you know, actual conservative, you know, real conservatives, they're just like, ah, you know, they don't really say a lot. They just use it as an epithet and move along. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, part of that is that the re- that is the reason they can just say, yeah, conservatives. And that's it. Right. It's a bad word. But part of it is because they are actually obsessed with uncovering hidden racism. Yeah. Right. And who hides it best? What does Robin D'Angelo say? White progressives yeah. do the most yeah. daily damage of people to yeah. people of color. And I define as a white progressive, a uh, white liberal person who thinks that they get it, who believes that they're less racist or not racist. Yeah. And and there are whole books like Good White People is a book by Shannon Sullivan, another not small name. Not she's not a household like Robin D'Angelo, but she's not a small name in this world. Good white people. And this thing is just a screed against white liberals. Like they hate them. They hate them with all of the frustration of Martin Luther King and his letter from the Birmingham jail times like a million, but all of the rage yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of Malcolm X. But they, like don't they get their big names because white people consume them and love them? Like ta Coates, like the, the white liberal, the white progressive, the bourgeoisie, the, the, you know, this is my victimhood. This is my cherished victimhood that, that uh, allows me to escape the comfort of my life for a little bit, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Is, is have you, that, have is you that ventured into the conservative literature around this? Have you read Shelby Steele's White Guilt? No. I know that she's he, uh, he. not liked. <laughs> he. Shelby oh, Steele is, yeah, he, he's, at, he's at Stanford. I wasn't sure if he's still alive. I found out he's still alive. He's at Stanford. No, uh, it's one of the more insightful books I've read. Now, Helen read it also, and she agrees. She thinks he goes a bit too far into the kind of personal responsibility narrative that's very popular with conservatives, and she's welcomed that criticism. But yeah. it's extraordinarily insightful. Where what you're talking about is, well, don't they don't they like basically depend on, you know, the largesse, yeah, who have lots of money and white guilt to to and status. Feel like I mean, that, that's what we're seeing. Yeah. All these huge. Uh, you know, industry giants, the New York Times, Time, etc. They, they are expending their their status and giving it to the people who are abusing them. And, and that's so why I kind of sarcastically, kind of just I don't know even I don't I don't want to say it's malicious, but it was like it was snark. We're fairly early on in this whole like mess with the riots and the protests, and then all these diversity trainers getting twenty, thirty thousand dollars or whatever for a two hour talk. I was like, looks like reparations got paid to the diversity trainers and yeah. the people who ran off with, with the jewels. Yeah. Um, in other words, they're burning through their social capital yeah. uh, and taking economic capital. But, of course, it's primarily going to this kind of, um, well, with, 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 with looters and rioters, it's like the lawless. But with yeah. these diversity trainers, it's. I think they're sincere, but they're clearly grifting off of this game. I'm not going to. A lot of people are like, "Oh, Ibram Kendi's a con artist." I, I don't think he is. I think he believes his his shtick, and the time like has smiled upon him. Like, yeah. you know, the period of history has smiled upon upon him in his good fortune. What a prophet, uh, I man! Think, I just you know the Evergreen story, right? A little bit. You've seen, uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty well. There's yeah. there's one character, Felix Braffith, who who does a lot of speaking and and he's he never really makes sense, but he's always the preacher, and yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and he's like the the I'm sorry to say this, but Kendi is just such a he's so stupid. Like when he ta- when he writes his things, it's like this is the prophet of our time. Like is this what we deserve? <laughs> I get so much trouble for saying that. The first time I said it on Twitter too, I was like, it's I've read Kendi's book. And it's like, 
he's you can tell like he's trying hard to grapple with ideas that are bigger than he is and it's just that bigger than his intellect and it's just like and then the constructions that he has and it's like you know they're so simplistic like here's a racist trope people believe that therefore racism and it's just like god it's just <laughs> not that bright and so i actually signed up for one of his webinars it was a free one i signed up for one of his webinars and went to it like well i didn't go i was sitting in this chair but you know i turned it on and sat through the whole thing to listen to him talk like in an actual conversation i was just like holy crap this, this is just what it is he's just he's he's and i was trying to figure out in particular because i read d'angelo and d'angelo it's like i don't know what else to say except that it's very clear that she's she's written a puritan track yeah if you go back and read the ones from like the 1600s it's the same yeah. it's the same no it's no the confession you, the humiliation yeah and you all you have to do is same. look at her face like her face is making this the same exact like if you just put her clothes and 200 years ago close, she is that marm that yeah. is controlling society. She is. She, you can tell that there, I think it's genuinely the, the, the moral form of OCD called scrupulosity. I just think that she's identified that she has racist thoughts and that her cohort seems to share many of them mm-hmm. and that she doesn't know how to reconcile that problem in herself in a, in a healthy way. And uh, has de- like I think her whole theory is a confession around that, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing that's true with D'Angelo, D'Angelo is extremely theoretically consistent. All of her writing, she's such a gem, and it's difficult now because people are trying to distance themselves from her to a degree. She's so clearly theoretically consistent, and she writes this very complicated theory in a way that a 10 or a 12-year-old could understand it, frankly whether it's white fragility, whether it's her earlier books for education, like what does it mean to be white, which very few people have read, or um, the book she did with, with uh, Aslam Sensoy, which is, is everyone really equal? It's really accessible. It's very theoretically consistent. She's very clear. This is the contribution of the Frankfurt School. This is the contribution of the postmodernists. This is social justice. It's very, very cut dry, clear, theoretically consistent, and you can tell that that the Angelos got a grasp of the theory. When you read Kendi, on the other hand, you're like, he's like, well, sometimes black people are racist too, but anti-racism, and sometimes we need discrimination, and sometimes it's bad, and it's like, at first I thought, he's not really postmodern. He doesn't understand postmodernism like D'Angelo does. He's a materialist, more like Derek Bell, and he leans pretty heavily on Derek Bell. Uh-huh. And so for a while, I was pushing that. And then I listened to him talk about his word policy. And he's like, well, I started to use the word policy to mean every kind of policy. I mean the policy like at the law. I mean the policy in institutions. I mean the policy of what is between you and me when we talk. We have a policy about how we talk. And I was like, he, he means systemic. And then he says it. He's like, I mean the same thing as systemic. And the reason I decided for policy was I needed a word that people understand. Because I say systemic racism is what I used to say. And people say, well, what does systemic mean? And I couldn't really explain it. And I, was, and I couldn't get them to understand. So I just switched it to policy because people understand that. And I was like, oh, he's a moron. He yeah. isn't intellectually capable of being theoretically consistent. And that's why his book reads as, and it's very touching. Helen was very touched. I was, I wouldn't say I was moved by it, but it was like, it's clear 
that this is a man wrestling with these ideas. And that's very inspiring to the reader. It's, it's actually a fun thing to read in terms of personal journey to read how to be an anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much with stamps from the beginning, I don't think, but uh, grappling with the ideas. But then it's unfortunate that the reason he's grappling with them isn't because he's seeing the contradictions and the complications. It's because he doesn't really understand the theoretical basis from which he's speaking in a consistent way. And yeah, so he becomes the prophet of our times, you know, is it, it's, is it going to be like the word salad slinger Deepak Chopra from whatever, <laughs> or is it going to be now we've got, you know, Kendi, who's got a tenuous grasp on the ideas of how society works, the theory from which he's coming, but a pretty firm grasp. Like, I think he knows what he means and what he's talking about. And he has a very clear understanding that if it's equity, then it's anti-racist. And if it is not equity for specific racial groups, but not others, then it's racist. And, and he, what, so what is he, equity in this formulation? Reparation? That or equity means equal outcomes. Yeah, okay. But to be honest with you, you know, of course, the definition of equity in practice includes space for reparations. It's essentially affirmative action plus some semblance of reparations. So, for example, if you had, say, in a particular city, it's 10% black, just to say, or whatever, and you have a, a committee that's made up of 100 people, equity, perfect equity would mean that you always have very close to 10, right, uh, black people on the committee, because it's perfect parity with society. So there's no reason to believe that the, the demographic is skewed. Well, Kendi, I'm sure, would be completely comfortable with it being 20, uh, but it, not with it being nine, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. So And they, they dress up that 20 as a temporary measure. They do put that in there, and I'm talking about the group in yes. general. We we need a temporary right because they have this view that at the kind of end of history, everything should have equaled out by the end of history. So you have the historical injustice to make up for, and over the coming whether it's years, decades, or centuries, but probably they're not going to be that patient for centuries. At the end of history, it should all equal out, and I mean that's why in the the long ass article I just wrote recently about it being religious, I identify their god as the I at the end of history. Uh, that, that judges everybody as to whether you are on the right side of it or not. Were you on the right side of history or were you on the wrong side? Well, we'll see the totality of your actions and the impact that that had over the ensuing years, which if you see that as the God, you can see why you can go back in time and judge people morally uh, the wrong way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So what is critical race theory then? Critical race theory is the study of systemic oppression. Uh, it is a belief that that race is a social construction of the powerful interests of, of society that are white people many centuries ago that has become entrenched. It has created legacies, but it is also it, material legacies like the wealth gap, for example, uh, and and other i guess there are other gaps that we could point to wealth is the easiest to see because they talked about redlining and, and the different financial yeah. ways that they were screwed over and only two generations out of legit segregation and legit you yeah. know hardcore discrimination so it takes all of it studies all of these legacies of racism and, and the existence of racism now and it says that that is the primary determining variable for people it was constructed by white people out of a desire to control society and its and its systems 
those systems now include the way that people are going to think, the way they're going to talk, the way they're going to communicate, the way that they're going to um, engage in commerce, the way that they're going to engage in industry, the way that they're going to, to try to like it's punctuality, loyalty, reliability, it's the core cultural values that would relate to work and interaction and life in society. White people set all this up for themselves and that that needs to be challenged. It needs to be named as racism in a vague systemic sense. And at every single point, it needs to be challenged and rooted out. That's what critical race theory is about. And again, we can add in what its fundamental tenets are and what its fundamental assumptions happen to be. And the fact that like it believes that racism doesn't easily get removed if that's permanence Derek bell or it doesn't get removed that's permanent Derek bell uh also depending on when he was speaking referencing his book uh faces at the bottom of the well both times um so it changes forms and that the point of critical theory of adopting a critical consciousness or a particular racial awareness or cultural competence would be another euphemism they use for that now allows you to see how the real determining variable is race and racism. And then what does that, that cause you to do? Like, how do you act out? You are, I mean, so Robin D'Angelo phrases it, that it's a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. Uh, so we can break down what those are. Self-reflection yeah. is that you're constantly looking into yourself to see how you are complicit in these systems, how you have upheld them, how you have acted in accordance with them. Self-critique is then analyzing those kind of unearthed gems from your own history uh, to to see them in terms of having a critical consciousness and understanding them in terms of the way that systems of power are relevant now, social activism includes, you know, ideas like that you have to forward, well, you have to, to, to take apart, Robin Angelo says the goal is to become less white. So you have to divest of your whiteness. You have to, to step away from those cultural values and believing that those, those values have primacy and actual value and kind of become this, ideally, I think, if you were to be really kind to them, you'd become this, like, blank slate that that doesn't see any particular cultural values is better or worse, but we've also got to make up for the disparities of society. So that tilts the balance the other direction. And we have to start to promote uh, that which has been marginalized and excluded by by race. We have to um, hmm. always use your privilege to disrupt yeah, systems of power when you find them. Yeah. So in other words, you have to basically see race and everything and be a pain in the ass about it. Okay, Just, yeah, there you go. That's what it is. That's what it uh, is. We have to make race relevant to everything. So you and I are talking, both apparently white people. Yeah. And therefore, we have to say, how is race relevant to this? It's obviously that we excluded black people from being here. So now we're talking in whiteness without having to critically examine that. And if we brought in Mike Nana, who's half black, now all of a sudden there's a relevance of race. And so how do we deal with that? Well, we have to constantly bring it up and say, what's your black perspective, which isn't at all patronizing. <laughs> tell, us, tell us, black man. Um, and, you know, and why does this not belong in government and education? Why, 
what's the argument for this to be a religion that you can believe in and participate, but we're not going to center sure. it in our institutions or allow or, so, or perpetuate it in our institutions? There are two big arguments for that. One is if you want to look at it in kind of the religion side that you explicitly brought up is that it is a bunch of unfalsifiable subjective beliefs that, that minimize our ability to have satisfactory conflict resolution. So if you and I are, if one of us were, were black, we we're having the discussion and then the, the, the black person suddenly called the white person a racist, the only resolution that's acceptable to that conflict is to say, yes, I'm correct, I'm sorry, and, and give, give in. So there's no... Subordinate. Yeah, so, so there's racial superiority and inferiority baked in, and it's unfalsifiable. So that was the reason number two, is that when, when Trump was asked in the, in the presidential debate, why did you ban critical race theory? And he said, because it's racist. And then later he added un-American, which is also true, but we can talk about the patriot side, of, patriotism side of this or nationalist side of this in, in another context or another time or now, whatever, I don't care. But the first thing he said is because it's racist is true. So if we look at the way that I know we kind of started here that with the executive order, the way that it's worded, I said it's very even handed. It absolutely like if people really wanted to if normally the left, if, if Obama had put out the same order, they would be all about way that it absolutely shuts the door to white supremacy. That's the way they would probably be spinning it, because what it says is nobody's going to be racially scapegoated nobody's going to be racially stereotyped. Mm-hmm. Also, it turns out it, it addresses sex and race. Yeah. So what um, it does so, to, get, to bring it back to the gymnasium is that it negates grouping by those categories. That's right. It, yeah. it allows for other groupings, but it, it negates those. Right. It says that we're not going to make determinations based on those things. Right. So, um, one way to put this would be that if you have the two groups in the gymnasiums, maybe they're the reds and the blues, uh, and the reds want something to happen, and the blues oppose that happening, we're red is not a good enough reason. You have to have a better reason than we're red. Okay. And, well, the reds have been cheated in all the other decisions. Still not good enough. And, the you know, the blues hate us. That's why we need it. Nope, not good enough. Okay. Uh, so, so racial stereotyping and racial... Uh, scapegoating blaming the fortunes of the, the outcomes of one race on another in a deterministic way are now not allowed to be taught and i think that that's correct because it inflames racial division it doesn't heal as they say racial division but we can still operate or the government and the education system can still critically analyze the data and say why are we not serving why are there's why are these outcomes different, and well, sure. how can I mean, we it, how can we bring up people to the same level? It, it, right. Can we do that without breaking down or shaming the people on the high you know line of, of achievement, uh, or can we just concentrate on the pe- raising the lower up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't preclude other other approaches. It precludes racial stereotyping and racial uh, scapegoating. It also doesn't even, like, say, at the level of schools or universities, as far as I understand, it doesn't preclude teaching. Like, if you wanted to have a critical race theory class in a university or whatever, if I don't even know if the EO covers hmm. universities, but e- even so, you could teach the subject. 
you can't run a training at the level of the administration or the yeah, faculty. You, you can't you can't be a part of the gymnasium. You cannot incorporate that into the actual institution, but you can still have that. Sure. You can still have your beliefs, right. but you cannot impose right. this. And one of the reasons you can't is because it's highly dog dogmatic. It forces everybody to either get on the same page and subordinate them based on these categories. If you play it out in the evergreen bubble, that's what happens. And it's hard to bring people up to speed on that because one, it, it's claiming to solve this really big problem. And two, right. it, it's, it's appealing to people's uh, goodness. It's saying we are going to actually solve this stuff mm -hmm. that has been around for, you know, let's say 400 years or 3000 years, 400 years is the, is the current time. Yeah, 400, yeah. 400 to 500. I mean, within critical race theory, it's very uh, narrow. It really only looks at the Western context. Yeah. And so it believes that racism was invented by those white people, mostly in England and Scotland, uh, you know, 500 years ago, specifically so they could have slaves and conquer the, the world outside of Europe uh, for the, and make it their own brown and black bodies or whatever. And so they, they think racism and race were invented meaningfully then, and they don't really look much past that. So you've been doing this for two years. This is the anniversary. Yep. How have, the, has, have things changed? Have, have you seen results in your work? <laughs> okay. There are lots of domains. How have things changed where? At the university, like currently right now, our university and our institutions are definitely doubling down, right? But at the same time, the awareness that this problem is real and that it exists, and more importantly, that it's comprehensible, People understand now something of what's going on. So if we think of my job not to have been, the, oh, Jim changed it, you know, but if my job was, and I, this is how I view myself, as providing education, educational informative resources that help people understand the problem so that they can get their heads around it and then start to take action as they, as they, they see fit in their own affinities and walks of life, then I think I've actually, we've had tremendous results. Uh, we haven't had the kind of magic wand results that we wish we'd had, you know, in an ideal world where I could wave the wand, academia would have been, oh no, you know, we have egg on our face and we have no pants on. Let's change our ways, which clearly is the opposite of what has happened. Um, our institutions would have said, what, we've been hiring these fools. Ah, we have to get away from that, you know, and that's not what has happened for no. sure. But in the sense of having started to empower people, I hear for, literally about this almost every day. Uh, somebody is like, you have given me the tools to have achieved this result in the world, or at least to have understood this. Um, I actually get a surprising, they're the most touching and uncomfortable correspondences I get. You stopped me from killing myself because I finally understand what's going on. I was losing my mind and I wasn't going to have it anymore. And I, I was going to kill myself. And I read new discourses like, Eesh. you know, like that's pretty grim right there. Yeah. Um, as far as criticizing woke goes, it's of course depends on how long and how entrenched and how successful it is. But I think this is a time limited activity. I don't want to become the guy, you know, the famous general who wins the war and he, comes out and he doesn't know what to do with his life. So he just goes and finds new wars to fight. Mm. Um, there is the issue that I think in a broader picture, I mean, we talk about wokeness, wokeness in some sense really arose between 2010 and 2015. So it's fairly new, but we also talk about its antecedents philosophically. Mm. Marxism is one, uh, 
you could even say that Rousseau's vision of, of the French liberalism is, is an older one. You could say that the, 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 the critical theory school, much more specifically, is 100 years old now, is another one. This is clearly, there's some kind of a root problem that's recurring. And I actually have always wondered why people are so seduced by communism. What is so seductive about that idea? So there are bigger ideas, a bigger fish to fry I may turn to to try to make sure that the cycle of this bubbling up, you know, we had radical activism, you know, it kind of bubbled up in the 90s with the whole PC thing. And then the culture war then, it kind of bubbled up or did bubble up in the late 1960s, early 1970s with the riots in 67, 65, 68, going into even the early 70s with all the really, really vicious activism around the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Um, It bubbled up in the 30s, obviously, uh, late 30s. It bubbled up in the 20s following these kind of Bolshevik revolutions. It's bubbled up kind of cyclically. And so I think that there are, there's some underlying problem that somehow attaches itself to liberalism right. and that I would like to be able to understand and articulate the kind of counter-enlightenment problem, if you will, uh, which sort of keeps bubbling up. And I, I don't fully agree with Stephen Hicks's diagnosis of that, but I think he's also you know somewhat insightful with his explaining postmodernism. And he goes back to Kant very uh, controversially. As to whether he was an Enlightenment or counter-Enlightenment figure, and I think it's a bit of both. It's a bit mixed up. Probably, in total, he's more Enlightenment than counter-Enlightenment, but uh, it's a bit bit nuanced. Um, something is going on that allows, like, it used to just be, why is communism, given the size of the failures that we saw through the 20th century, why is it so seductive? Why do so many young people... Yeah. Fall into the belief that it's going to work. This never been tried right this time, you know, by making it racist, it'll work. You know, how, why does it, why does it keep coming up? Solving those kinds of problems and advancing, you know, an articulation of liberalism that, that helps people understand mm-hmm. and close the door to that would be very interesting to me. Well, maybe, but maybe not, it's not, maybe it's. I don't want to uh, be anti woke for any, for like one minute longer than I have to be. Yeah. If that makes maybe, sense. Maybe it's, in some respect, perhaps it is generational, and it, it, it's emergent when a certain number of factors and an age group come of age, it comes it's together. Possible. But, but maybe it's, totally it's not a bad thing. Maybe this is the test, and, and it, it forces liberalism to upgrade itself. It, it, it is, uh, a, it, it is an assault, thing. like a hacking incident, that, that causes the entire mainframe or the framework of liberalism right. to, to, come, to become new. And you have to have that antagonistic aspect, yeah. that Luciferian aspect yeah. within heaven, yeah. right, to, to allow heaven to be more than just this palace of comfort. Right, right, right. And ignorance. Yeah, I think that that's possible too. You know, just the, the, the dynamic, and maybe I want to understand it, maybe I don't. But as far as like being anti woke, <laughs> I literally want to be that not one minute longer than it's necessary. I've yeah. been saying from the beginning, I want to retire, I want to quit. Yeah, my job is to make myself irrelevant. Yeah, I want to walk away from it. That said, I think that a very interesting problem if we're going to kind of transition, how do I know when to stop? And we transition that into, well, what do you think you'll do then? Um, I, I keep finding myself saying the same thing in the past several weeks and almost every kind of podcast or phone call or interview or whatever that I end up on. Hmm. And it's that I've now come to the conclusion that we, you know, it's everybody kind of realizes that social media and the internet have fundamentally changed the infrastructure of society, that the meaning of 
network theory, for example. Somebody asked me um, yesterday or the day before some ideas of books that you might read or concepts that are really important, and I just found myself just blurting out Nicholas Christakis' Blueprint. Can you say that again? about networks. And I started Blueprint by Nicholas Christakis from Yale, the guy who got yelled at for Halloween costumes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's about network theory. And so the the nature of networking has changed overwhelmingly because of the Internet. So now we have these groups like Antifa that you have Joe Biden standing up and saying, well, that's not an organization. It's an idea. No, Joe, it's a syndicate. But it's also correct that it's not formally an organization. It is a syndicate. Uh, and you do have these kind of decentralized things now that are very much able to grow and spread and be a real force in society without ever formally organizing, um, hmm. without ever formally establishing things. So we now are in a very, just using networks. So we now have a very different playing field. And my belief is that among many other factors, one of my beliefs is that liberalism itself is a set of underlying principles of, say, objectivity and merit and, you know, individualism and universality. All of these different pieces needs genuinely to be updated and re-articulated, as you were saying, in this new context. So we almost need, you know, the printing press brought about an enlightenment. We almost need an enlightenment 2.0 that... And I don't want to use such dorky language for it, but we almost need such a thing that looks at the realities of how, uh, what is it that, that Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message? Hmm. Like, that's a reality now. Various things that if you read Foucault and just put yourself in the headspace, he was talking about social media. And then you read it and you're like, wow, so insightful, you know. It's like they were really kind of touching on some, some stuff way ahead of their time in that regard. And I'm not trying to resurrect Foucault's um, legacy, but there's something to this. And so liberalism has this new paradigm in which I think that the value, underlying values are correct, but their expression in the, given, in the new infrastructure has to be figured out and articulated. And so always from the beginning, I thought I was a fucking genius when I came up with this. And it turns out like everybody knows this. So I just thought of it by myself, but it's like, duh. When you're trying to take on a big problem, say like wokeness or if it were the Catholic Church or whatever, turns out I figured this out all by myself. I was so proud of myself. Me and Mike, like, we're like, that's it. That's it. We thought we figured it out, but it's like <laughs> as old as time. No, we're so stupid. Um, but there, it's a three-stage process, which is to uh, – you have to do exposing – the, the corruption or the failure or the rot. You have to be able to offer an explanation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of what's going on kind of in a very purposecacious way that takes into account how it's failing, but also how it sets itself against other ideas. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be able to articulate alternatives. That's the three phase. Like people were like, what's the mission of new discourses? Yeah. And my first expression of it was expose, explain, articulate alternatives. That's it. That's what yeah. I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And people were like, to what? And I was like, whatever the big stupid is. Yeah. There's always going to be some big stupid. Let's find yeah. that. Let's expose, explain, articulate alternatives. Yeah. If you kind of look at it as, you know, this progression, <laughs> um, the the grievance studies affair two years ago today, right? And now we're probably getting close to the time we actually revealed it. The grievance studies affair, that's definitely exposed. And then we've got cynical theories. I've got new discourses. 
people say you're doing a critical theory of critical theory, a critical, critical theory, theory. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm doing a traditional critical theory, theory. I'm doing a traditional theory of of critical theory. I'm trying to explain what critical theory is. I'm trying to explain how it works. I'm not actually trying to do a critical theory of it. I'm not trying to just play the new atheist game and pick at all the problematics it, it generates. I'm trying to explain rigorous epistemologies, rigorous ethics, rigorous, rigorously understand the historical context in which this arose, the, philosoph- the philosophers and the philosophies that, that, that gave rise to this. I want to give a traditional theory of critical theory. So that's explain and then articulate alternatives is, you know, they obviously you're doing all of these things sort of at once, yeah, but yeah, yeah. articulate alternatives becomes you should have this general progression where you're doing more exposing and eventually doing more uh, explaining and eventually you're doing more articulating alternatives. And I really like if I had to say, what's my five year plan, whether it's having kept new discourses, sold new discourses, moved on from new discourses, whatever, whatever with new discourses. Um, as that goes, my five year plan, I guess, really is how do I start leaning into that? creative vision for the next thing uh, to the degree that I'm capable, which is maybe significant, not maybe, I don't know. And to the degree that I'm comfortable. And I say that specifically because I know personally that I'm very uncomfortable telling people how they should think, act, do right. I just believe I'm, I, I joke and say I'm way too libertarian in the sense of being kind of like socially libertarian, not necessarily politically libertarian. And that I don't like to tell people, like, you should believe this or you should say that or you should act this way. Um, and when you put out a creative vision, when you give people 12 rules for life, you got to tell them what to do. Yeah. Right. And I'm, I, I have some growth to do before I'm ready to start telling people what to do. I think I'm too, too young, too green, too uh, naive for that. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.